Well, hey, it's, uh, it's the Christmas season, and I'm just going to jump right in because I have all this fun stuff that I've been working on and studying uh, about another character in the Christmas story, and I've never done a message on Joseph uh, before, and that's what we're going to look at today, and we're going to spend uh, this morning, the time that we're together in the teaching and sermon um, uh, we're going to look at just this section from the start of the New Testament. Um, as I said, the man uh, named Joseph, and there's not a ton of details about Joseph, but if we read it real slow, and we wonder, <laughs> and we wonder what maybe happened uh, in the moments that aren't described in the text, but maybe the spaces between the words, I think that there are some things that we can pick up and learn from the mess that his life encountered because of his connection and saying yes to being the adoptive father of the Messiah. And that's our, this is our Advent, our pre-Christmas series. Um, the, the series is the stories that put the mess in Messiah. So we're going to look at the messes that happened in Joseph's world uh, by looking at that Matthew 1 story. We're going to be introduced right here to the parents of the Messiah, Jesus, in verse 18. It was like this. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a... Joseph, here's the phrase to hang on to. Joseph was a righteous man. Did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. After he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet, look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph <clears throat> woke up, <laughs> he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus, Jesus. Now, <clears throat> I want to rewind here back to the start of this here, what it says about Joseph in verse 19, where it says, Joseph was a righteous man. Now, just because we don't like to throw around words like that without defining them, because not everybody here has you know, been in church forever, and some of us who've been in church a long time forget what these words mean, because we use them a lot. So righteousness simply, uh, it's a very maybe oversimplified definition, but it'll do. Righteousness is simply right standing before God. That's righteousness, right standing before God. And the Hebrew word for a righteous man in that era is the word sadiq. Sadiq. Now, there was a there's a real rich history behind the, the idea of a sadiq. Um, this is this is actually a real key for the message today. Um, we're gonna look at what a sadiq is. And we can dance along, too. I kind of like the, I like that's a good, that's a good tune. 
We're going we're gonna to look at this word Sadiq. In fact, I want to give credit to the, the three different teachers who I've heard over the years use this term, really inspired a guy named Scott McKnight. He's a New Testament scholar. He's a professor. He actually used to teach at the seminary that I'm t- taking some classes uh, at. Uh, and um, uh, John Ortberg and uh, another teacher named Brad Gray also have just been very helpful. So if you want to go deeper in this idea that you hear about this morning, uh, check them out and shoot me a message and I'll send you some, some links. But when each of these three, I've heard them talk about Joseph being that phrase, being a righteous man, each of them point out the significance of this Hebrew word, sadiq. Joseph was a sadiq, and this means he was known for his uncompromising obedience to the Torah, to the law of Moses. Uh, So out of his commitment to want to honor God, he took God's law very, very seriously. He did not eat unclean foods. He he didn't mix with the wrong kind of people. He didn't keep his carpentry shop open on the Sabbath to try to make a little few extra bucks on the side. Um, I'm guessing nobody invited Joseph over to have ham sandwiches with, you know, prostitutes and tax collectors. Not yet, anyway, but... But he was, uh, he was a Sadiq. He was uh, known, reputation was to be a righteous man. It was his identity that everybody around would know about him. Um, see, every devout Israelite wanted to be seen as a Sadiq, a righteous person, because then you would be admired, you would be looked up to, because then, with the uh, kind of title or the description as a Sadiq, then you were somebody. See, and that's who Joseph was. He was who people wanted to be. Um, kind of like maybe a business person in our day would like to be one day a CEO um, or, or an athlete one day hopes to be an all-star um, or kind of like a person that's born in you know, Green Bay, Wisconsin would love to be living anywhere else. These are things to us. Well, that didn't work as good second service. We have Wisconsin people in here. A lot of Packer fans in here. Okay, like a person who was born in Blythe would love to be from anywhere else. (laughs) Thanks for trying, thanks for trying. Um, He was what people, Joseph was what people aspired to be, just like him, this this Sadiq figure. But but now, at this point in the story, now he's a Sadiq with a problem. The girl that he's promised to marry is going to have a baby, and whoever the father is, Joseph knows it's not him. See, Nazareth was this, Nazareth, the town they lived in, was a very small town. And as a general rule about small towns, you can imagine how word gets around. Um, You know, here at Hope, we talk about being a grace-based family. But in small towns, there's a different kind of family or community um, that described with another uh, G word to describe there. Anybody want to guess the G word that describes a small town? Gossip. Yes, some of you have been in (laughs) small towns. Um... So here we got a Sadiq and a pregnant fiance in a small gossipy village of Nazareth where the general rule is everybody knows everybody else's business. Now, because today, you know, I know, we live on the other side of Christmas. We know what happens. Um, so we like to kind of rush through the story and go, Whew, everything turns out great, right? We like to go there. But I think that when we do that, um, we can miss the whole point. Uh, for instance, of what maybe Joseph was learning and what we could learn from him. There's these amazing details that go on in the Christmas story, besides, you know, 
how Jesus got here, which is important, but there's other details. And if we slow down, if we pause, if we wonder, if we ask questions and leave space between the words and even letters, I think um, we can see some of the mess that these characters had to wrestle through. Um, and we can see, and what we'll see today is, is that even before Jesus was born, God was already beginning to clarify, to maybe even redefine what it means to be a sadiq, what it means to be someone who lives in true righteousness. God was going to start shifting that even before Jesus' ministry right here in the life of Joseph. So that's why I want to just walk in Joseph's shoes as we look at this story, another story really that puts the mess in the coming of the Messiah. So, like I said, just pretend for a moment, sort of suspend that you don't know the rest of the story, you don't know how it works out. Just try to put yourself in Joseph's shoes for for a moment. Just imagine, if you can, being a a devout, faithful Jewish man 2,000 years ago, and you find out your your fiancé is pregnant. See, verse 18 tells us that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, but in the next verse, verse 19, we read that well, Joseph's actually going to break the engagement uh, quietly. And, and the word there is actually can be translated to, bless you, to divorce her. To divorce her because it was a different sort of system. It was pretty serious. Um, he's getting ready to kind of quietly break things off. So, so what happened here between verses? Um, how, how, how do you imagine maybe Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. Like, who do we even maybe guess probably told Joseph that Mary was pregnant? Any guesses who told him? Ma- Mary had to tell him, probably, right? Mary, because he knows. He knows. And he doesn't take it as good news. Um, and can you imagine the conversation when Mary has to come to Joseph after she's had a visit from an angel, which we find out about in Luke, but, but right here, nobody knows that. Mary shows up. She's 13, 14 years old. Just imagine you're Joseph, and she says to you, Hey, um, Joseph, I, I got some uh, bad news and some good news. Um, bad news is... Um, is that I'm pregnant even though we're not married yet. Um, the good news is, I haven't been with anyone else. Okay, right away, his head is spinning, right? And Mary probably tries to keep explaining. I imagine she says, listen, listen, listen. Uh, an angel came to me and said, Mary, highly favored one. Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you, this angel said, I'm going to have a miracle baby. And the angel said that all generations for future times, all generations will call me blessed, except for Protestants. Um, she, she, you know, she had a little prophetic. She might have said, I'll be so well known by the entire world that a last second desperation pass in a football game with time running out will be named after me. Hail, hail, hail Mary, any? No, no, okay. Not as funny if you have to explain it. Um, but, but just imagine, uh, she's saying, Joseph, I, I know, it's hard to believe. This is going to be amazing, though. Like, I'm going to conceive a child miraculously. And I know that's never happened before, but it's going to happen to me. And I guess by extension to 
us. However the conversation went down, obviously, um, at some point, Joseph did not buy in. He didn't buy it. He didn't believe it because verse 19 says he's going to break their betrothal. And again, just put yourself in his shoes. Imagine his struggle. Think about this. New Testament scholars say that Joseph's dad probably arranged the marriage to Mary with Mary's family. So I got to tell dad about this. And he looks at Mary, and we don't know. Maybe he knew her pretty well because it was a small town, but maybe not. It was not uncommon to not really know your betrothed's uh, spouse. It's just hard to say. We don't know whether he knew her very well or not. But either way, after he hears this wild news from her, I'm going to guess that he probably, this head spinning, he's got to go think about this, right? He's got to go think about this. He's probably thinking, I mean, I don't know, like, she seemed so sincere, almost believable, but, but, but an angel, an angel? <laughs> okay, that's hard to believe, but impossible. A virgin birth? Like, no way, no way. So he doesn't buy it. He doesn't believe it. So I'm guessing the next thing he does, he's got to think through, okay, what are my options? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Um... He doesn't want people thinking that he's the father because he's a Sadiq. And then he also has to think about, okay, what, how, how would I need to handle this as a righteous man, as a Sadiq? Because as a Sadiq, your, your whole reputation, the identity you have worked for, it revolves around one thing, your commitment to the Torah. It's, that's who you are. What the Torah says, what the law of Moses says, you do. And the Torah, it's got some pretty clear instructions on what to do to somebody in Mary's condition. Um, there's a section in Deuteronomy, Old Testament here, Deuteronomy chapter 22, covers marriage violations like this. And so if a, if a woman who's pledged to be married is unfaithful, verse 21, Deuteronomy 22 says, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house and there the men of this town shall stone her to death. She's done a very disgraceful thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge this evil from among you. Any of you have done, like, your devotional reading in Deuteronomy 22 lately? Anyone? Just, whew. I mean, this is harsh, right? And, and I wish we could stop and kind of unpack this, because it is worthy of being thought through and taught through and then compared to how Jesus now says we're supposed to live. I wish we had time to do that justice. We just can't cover it this morning. Um, but let me say this. Uh, today, we do not advocate... Um, killing people who sin in any way, sexually or otherwise. That is not how followers of Jesus, Jesus <laughs> uh, handle these kinds of situations or any situation. Uh, and there's reasoning behind that of why they did it back then, all this other stuff. But I just don't want you to walk away after reading this verse thinking that this verse, especially if you don't know the Bible very well, thinking that this verse is the sum total of the Bible's teachings on sex because it is not. Okay? 
This is why I bring up this verse. I want to give us some context for the world they lived in and what was believed and what they believed and what the people around them believed because they lived under the Torah, the law of Moses. And so because of that, when Mary tells Joseph she's pregnant, she and he both know what the Torah calls for. And what does the Torah call for? A death sentence, right? That's why this detail gets included in the story of this kind of pregnant before being married. It's why it's so serious for them, because it was serious. Mary's pregnancy puts her life in danger. The Torah, the law of Moses in the Old Testament was so clear. All of this was before Jesus, but it was clear. So then, Joseph... His reputation as a sadiq was on the line. And of course, everybody would know what he would do. It's pretty black and white. Like all of his fellow, you know, sadiq dudes that he hung with, his, his whole circle, they would say, well, yes, Joseph. Torah is clear. This is a sin that must be publicly exposed and punished. It's right there. But Joseph could not bring himself to do that, to expose, to punish. I think it's a clue into the kind of man he was, the mercy he carried. And no wonder he's chosen to adopt and help raise Jesus. This is a different kind of man right here who could think through these complexities and see mercy. So then he decides, well, don't want her killed. Verse 19 tells us he decides to break the engagement, to divorce her quietly. So a betrothal, an engagement back then was a legal act. Already it was a legal act. Engagements were much more formal than we have today. So to end this engagement, this betrothal, it required an act of divorce. And in doing this, Joseph's probably trying to figure out how do I show mercy to her? We spare her life. Maybe nobody finds out she's pregnant, which would help him then like maintain his reputation, his status as a sadiq, as a righteous man. It seems like the best thing to do under the circumstances. In fact, I want to emphasize that this was a big deal um, when we look back at just that verse, that phrase here in Matthew 119 where it says Joseph was a righteous man, didn't want to disgrace her publicly, we could look at that verse and think, oh yeah, it's saying, oh yeah, no, just, Joseph, he just didn't want to cause a ruckus because he's a nice guy. He's a, right, he's a nice guy. It's the nice guy thing to do, but that's not what was going on. In fact, the NIV gives us a little better angle when it says, because Joseph was faithful to the law, a Sadiq, and yet... He's faithful, and yet he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He divorced, wanted to divorce her quietly. Uh, New Testament scholar Dr. Don Hagner, um, one of the textbooks I've been using in my current class I'm going through, um, he says the best way to translate this phrase is, would be to say it this way. Although he was a Sadiq, a righteous man, although he was a righteous man, even though he was a righteous man, he didn't want to cause a scandal. It's like saying, in spite of the fact that he was righteous, a sadiq, in spite of that, he, he didn't expose her. And here's why that matters. 
See, because in the old system that was enforced, the way it was understood before Jesus, how righteousness was practiced, the response of a truly righteous man, a Sadiq, that response would have had demanded that because Joseph was a righteous man, Mary needs to be exposed and punished. See, they believed, well, it's very clear sinners need to be excluded, standards have to be maintained. In this old system, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant system, righteousness, of course, they believed righteousness always separates itself from sin and sinners, right? So when there is sin, a righteous man would not hesitate. He would do the right thing, and we all know what the right thing is. And yet, Joseph hesitated. He couldn't bring himself to say the words to go public in spite of being a Sadiq, a righteous man. He lays down his reputation. He lays down even, some would say, his standards, and he opts for mercy. This is not an easy decision for him to make, right? Just think about being Joseph again. Like, how long do you, you think he agonized about this decision for? We don't know. Like, it could have been hours. Could have been days. She might have gone away to see Elizabeth, and it was months. We don't know how long he agonized, but it has to be torturous. So he wrestles. He finally decides what he's going to do. And then, this is almost funny, and I'm almost mad about it, but <clears throat> once he decides, verse 20, then God sends a message to Joseph, right? Like, look at the screen here and, and tell me if you can see the key word, the one that kind of irritates me and maybe irritates you. Verse 20, after he had considered this, an angel appeared to him in a dream. What's the key word? Oh, you guys can read the better than the first service. You've got all, like, all caps, the obvious. Good job. That's a win. That's a win. Nicely done. After. After, that's the key word. See, so here's my question when I see this. Okay, well then why did God wait until after Joseph had to struggle and agonize with all this stuff? Like why couldn't an angel have come to him ahead of time? I mean, God did it for Mary. God sent an angel to Mary and explained everything that was going on. Why didn't he do that for Joseph? Explain the whole thing, just remove, you know, some of the anxiety, I guess the answer to that question, I ask another question, and the question is this, is it possible, <clears throat> is it possible that anxiety removal is not God's number one goal for Joseph, or for you and me? Oh, I don't like this question. Is it possible that just taking all anxiety away, it's not God's number one priority in your life or my life or Joseph's life. See, it makes me wonder if perhaps that when we are being called by God, when, when God calls us, he knows that if he's calling us into a risky situation, that we will all have to face down anxiety and wrestle with it. And so, what God invites Joseph into and invites us into is learning to trust him no matter how deep or strong the fears we face. Trust him. 
despite the fear. See, I think the question is not, um, well, will we face fear when, when God calls us to do something difficult? Like, of course we're going to feel afraid when God invites us into situations that stretch us. The question is not that. The question is this. The question is, will we trust and say yes to God? Will we trust God and say yes, even in our fear and anxiety of the unknown ahead of us? See, that's what happens here with with Joseph. (laughs) After he wrestles through all this stuff, then, after it, then the angel says, Joseph, don't be afraid. Notice this. Joseph, don't be afraid. It says in verse 22, take Mary home as your wife. Now, why would, that's kind of maybe on its face a little odd, why would Joseph be afraid to wed Mary? I mean, I guess part of it would be, well, he's a righteous man and wanted to honor the Torah. Maybe he was afraid of offending God. Um, That's part of it. Maybe that's why he was afraid or would have been afraid. But but, but I don't think that's all of it. See, I think Joseph very likely was also afraid of losing his reputation. See, by taking Mary as his wife, he's suddenly going to have to be afraid of what everybody else would think of him. I might be the only one in the room who suffers with um, (laughs) people-pleasing. But I can relate a little bit, being afraid (sighs) what people are going to think if I do that, say that, even if I do the right thing, say the right thing, what people will say, and I'm going to have to manage this and explain this, and what are people going to... No, he's he's afraid. Um, John Ortberg points out... um, this as well. He says, when, when Mary told Joseph about the angel, he knew how hard it was for him to believe her. Like it took an angel to convince Joseph, oh, this is real. She's not faking this up. And then Joseph might have wondered if, unless an angel shows up and shows all the people in the village, there's no way they're going to believe this, right? Like they got to be, they hear the story and they'd be like, oh, <clears throat> sure, yeah, right. Uh, an angel showed up, oh, here in little poverty-stricken Nazareth, this obscure village. Oh, and, and, and God caused the conception of a child in the body of a virgin teenage girl. Like, pfft, come on, there is no way nobody's going to believe that. Joseph knew that. He, he knew his family. His friends would never believe he and Mary's pregnancy story. He knew this would affect him. He probably wouldn't get invited to their homes anymore. Um, he knew he would not be given their business. Joseph knew that his reputation as a sadiq, as a righteous man, was done. He would never again be admired or respected by others as a lover of the Torah. He, of course, he was afraid. He knew that by committing himself to raise this baby, he would have to do so at the cost of his own reputation. And you know this, reputation is the work of a lifetime, and for him, he would have to trash the whole thing. So yes, this is a God-sized stretch. Of course, (laughs) he is afraid. So God has the angel tell Joseph, "Don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
And in verse 24, it says that Joseph trusted and did what the angel commanded. Right there, verse 24, 25, he does two things in these two verses. Um, here's the action he takes. Number one, he took Mary home as his wife. This is a legal step. Means he's publicly claiming her as his wife. That's first one. Number two, the end of verse here says that he named the baby. He named him Jesus. He named the baby. This is also a legal action. See, the act of naming a child back then, Joseph was then publicly adopting this child as his son. So right here, Joseph has made some big steps and deliberately tied his destiny to the lives of two stained reputations in the eyes of everybody else, Mary and Jesus. And I just think, again, it's so easy to read, just bang right through this story and be like, oh, everything was great. We don't know much about Joseph. Uh, he's probably a good guy, right? But, but just think about the impact of his decision here, right? In trusting God, his days as a Sadiq, a righteous man, they're over. Whatever the future has for him, down the line, um, the, the respectability that he worked so hard and honorably for, like he knew he was losing it, so he didn't make this decision flippantly. He had to have wrestled. I, I believe he must have knew the cost and then trusted God, stepped out, risking everything. And it cost him. It cost him for a long time. Probably the rest of his life. In fact, I, I want to show you uh, from a little snippet in Mark chapter 6 how fully it was that Joseph really did risk everything long-term on trusting what God was doing. Mark 6, when we look at it in a minute here, it's going, to give us, it's going to give us a hint of what Mary and Joseph's family, once they'd grown up, the kids grew up and Jesus was an adult, what their family looked like and what their neighbors thought about this family where Jesus was the firstborn. This little story here is going to remind us that it never got easier for them, ever. But... Time out on that here, just quick. First, little Bible quiz. Anybody do Bible quiz growing up? Sunday school Bible quiz? Sword drills? Anyone? Come on. Anybody? No one? Someone? Anyone? All right, today's your first chance. All right, here we go. So, um, if you're a Bible study kind of person, you might know this kind of trivia that we're going to look at. You can also cheat, but don't. Um, uh, and don't answer out loud yet. Just hold your answer. But here's the questions I'm going to ask. How many brothers and how many sisters did Jesus have? And, uh, and then I'll ask also, bonus question, uh, what were their names? So the first one, I'll make this multiple choice. First question, how many brothers did Jesus have? Uh, hold your answers. Um, is zero? Um, uh, B, one, C, did he have four, or D, did he have 12? So who, who would say, uh, okay, uh, A, Jesus had zero. Anyone going to go with that? It's a free place. You don't have to know the answer. It's all good, right? Okay, anybody think Jesus had one? Anybody? Okay, a few of us. Jesus maybe had one. Uh, C, uh, how many people? Um, four, four brothers. Anybody say four brothers? Ooh, we got some hands went up. Uh, anybody think 12? He's got 12. I think a lot of the fours were like, oh, everybody's putting their hand up on four. Yes, guess what? Number four, uh, the four, not C, like the letter C. Four is the correct answer there. That's what I'll say. Four, do, give yourself a hand if you, if you uh, there you go. Again, this is kind of trivia. I'll be honest, I did not remember the answer until I was studying for this. So there you go. Um, so second question. Um, now this one, there's going to be a prize, so. So don't answer. What were, what were the four brothers' names? See if you can get them. Anybody that thinks they know the four brothers' names? Anybody that thinks they know, raise your hand up. 
Raise your hand up if you weren't here first service. And <laughs> anybody, anybody know? Anybody? Anybody get three of them? Anybody think they can get three? Raise your hand if, yeah? You think you have it? No? No one? Nobody. Oh, here we go. All right, what do you got? You just stretching? Yeah. You're stretching? Okay, <laughs> stretching. All right, there goes the, I had prizes and everything, so. All right, here, here are the, the brothers were named James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Did anybody know at least one or two of the names? Yeah, a few of us knew them, right? We kind of, um, I think we said John, and I actually would have guessed John too, and I was like, oh, it wasn't there. I'll show you the verse in a second. Oh, and by the way, third question, what were, um, what were Jesus' sisters' names? Um, uh, they were actually Lily and Jackie. That was the names of Jesus. I'm just kidding. It doesn't tell us. I just made that up. It doesn't say. In fact, um, uh, it doesn't say, and it wasn't because, you know, we were, I think it wasn't because they were just ignoring the women. Um, uh, it may be that because the book of Mark was written while some of the family members of Jesus were still alive, that it actually would have kept them safer in that environment of persecution to not name the sisters. So there you go. The Bible doesn't tell us uh, any details on them, and it may be for their own good. So, but, all right, now back to how we got to the trivia here. Um, Mark 6, verse 3, tells us the names of his brothers. Um, but this also, watch for this, we also see an example of the price that Joseph paid for trusting God. Like this whole reputation thing and the scandal, it didn't just kind of fade away once Jesus grew up and became a man. This dishonor toward Joseph and toward the whole family, this disrespect, this loss of reputation dogged Joseph and his family for the rest of his life and beyond. Shows up right here, Mark 6, the hometown neighbors say this about Jesus. They scoffed. <laughs> He's just a carpenter. The son of Mary the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters, they live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Now, Joseph has probably died by this point in the story, but back in that day, even if a father had already died, a man in Israel was always referred to as the son of his father. So Jesus, son of Joseph was the way they did it back then. And, and back then, to refer to a man um, as the son only of the mother often was, in Aramaic, a harsh expression intended to be an insult. Something like a very crude English phrase today where somebody will call someone else a son of a something something and then use a real crude, insulting word for the mother. See, this scene here is actually pretty dramatic. It's pretty offensive. It's an attack um, on Jesus in front of his family, most likely. And this scene here demonstrates that it was decades later. This is not just years later. Jesus is probably 30, 31, 32 by this. So decades later in this little village of Nazareth, Joseph's reputation still has not recovered from his marriage to Mary and his adopting of Jesus. See, I point this out because Joseph paid a huge price for trusting God. 
Like it didn't get, you know, didn't sort of fade away as Jesus got older. This dishonor, this, this loss of reputation, this loss of being seen as a sadiq, as a righteous man, it harassed him for the rest of his life. And then after he was gone, his family too. And so when I think, when I think about the price that Joseph paid for trusting God, I think, you know, it's really striking that Joseph never did get to see the fulfillment of God's promise in Jesus, right? He, he never got to see that promise the angel made in Matthew 1.21. He never got to see how that promise would come to pass, that this baby he would raise would become a man and one day save people from their sins. He didn't get to see this promise come to pass. But friends, Joseph trusted God anyway. Like his neighbors, they may have stopped seeing him as a sadiq, as a righteous man, but that's not how God saw him. See, Joseph actually lived into the kind of righteousness that they didn't know about yet, the kind of righteousness, an actual righteousness that is built on trust and faith in God rather than just on actions and allegiances. See, when Joseph made this decision to wed Mary, he probably thought, and was right, this is his end of it as a, as a reputation as a, of a righteous man, at least in front of people. But what he didn't know, or at least couldn't fully have known, is this child that he would adopt would be the one who brings a new kind of righteousness to the whole human race, a real kind of righteousness that is available to all. And that's why we're here. It's really why we're here this morning, 2,000 years ago, talking about Jesus because of that new kind of righteousness that Jesus brought into this world. And again, just remember the word righteousness means right standing before God. And before Jesus, it was understood. Righteousness was, you know, somebody who's really good at following the laws, the rules, working hard on their reputation so they could achieve at least the chance of having right standing before God. But now, after Jesus came, how, how, how is one declared righteous? How does righteousness come about? See, see it's not by our own work. <laughs> it's not by our good performance. It's grace. <laughs> it's through trusting Jesus, it's through trusting Jesus. See, Jesus gave his life, his perfect sacrifice for your sins and mine, and now he offers that righteousness, his righteousness, to every single person. See, it's by his grace that we can be made righteous. There's nothing we can do now to earn it. He freely gives it to us when we simply trust when we have enough faith which is just enough faith that says yes to him <laughs> grace grace it's grace comes through faith another word for faith is trust all we need is to just trust Jesus and when we say yes and trust Jesus he declares us righteous not because of our own work or performance he declares us righteous with 
his righteousness. So we have right standing before God through the work of Jesus because of what Jesus did. So, so, so this means what you've done in the past is not um, the last word about who you are in the present. And the things that you currently struggle with or do in the present <laughs> do not have the power to fully define the truest thing about who you are. See, sin damages, it steals, kills, destroys, it, it wrecks havoc on our own souls. So grace isn't just flippant like, I can do whatever I want because I can just have Jesus' righteousness. No, it's, it's different than that. See, see, this righteousness is actually a way of living into fullness that God sees as the way for us to follow Jesus into a different way of living that actually leads to freedom, that leads to life, that leads to healing and wholeness. It's, following Jesus is like going with the grain of the universe rather than going against the grain where you get splinters. Following Jesus just aligns up the way God wired the universe to work so that you and I can go with that grain. We can go against the grain. It just doesn't work as well, and it might actually and often is very painful. So, so grace isn't just like, ah, everything's good. No, no, it's this invitation to trust God, to then live into this way that he will help us live into. And your righteousness, though, is a gift of grace for free. So worship team comes. I just think this baby, Jesus Christ, that was born to Mary and adopted by Joseph, Jesus redefined righteousness once and for all, and then he freely gives it to anyone who asks. It's a free gift of God, which is so different than trying to earn your way or the status or prove yourself and never quite knowing if you could pull it off. It's a free gift of God. And I think of a couple of categories of people that are here this morning, and maybe, maybe you resonate with needing that free gift of grace. Maybe you look at your own life and you go, I, I am not following Jesus or haven't, or maybe I was and I haven't been now for a while. Maybe you've just been trying to do to make your, your best to make your life work on your own and Something inside goes, I'm going against the grain of the universe. It's not working. It's not right. Maybe you know something's missing, and maybe that's even what brought you here this morning. And whether you knew it or not, maybe your heart knew you needed to be here and drew you here this morning. Maybe you recognize an emptiness that you're trying to fill with so many other things. Or maybe you look back at your own past, and it haunts you. Or the choices you're making in the present, you know it isn't working. And what you know above everything is that you need the forgiveness of Jesus and you want right standing with God. And I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or move from your seat or do anything. Sometimes that's very appropriate to do in this morning. I just had a sense just to pray a simple prayer. That if you uh, have not given your life to Jesus, if you've not said yes to following Jesus, if you have not received this righteousness that he offers to those who say yes to him, I want us to just take a moment and do that. Um, and this is a start.
But this prayer can be a powerful start. So a simple prayer that you could pray. Simply, God, help. I need you. Forgive me. Wash me clean. Make me new. Jesus, I choose to follow you. And there's no magic formula. I'm going to pray that again, especially now that you've heard it. And if you've never made that decision or you've not been walking with God for a while, I just invite you to pray along with me right where you're at. Simply pray, God, help. I need you. Forgive me. Wash me clean. Make me new. Jesus, I want to follow you.